Welcome to the Beauty Doc Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Joel Kopelman, a cosmetic oculoplastic surgeon in New York City. You're going to hear from interesting guests who are authorities in their specialty. We will cover topics on health, beauty, and cosmetic surgery, and you will receive unfiltered, truthful information about all these procedures. Today, we're going to talk about the most popular cosmetic surgical procedure in the United States, breast implants, or as medical professionals we call, breast augmentation. That translates into about 300,000 women each year in the United States undergoing this procedure, and the trend has been upward since 2006. Most of the implants that are inserted into the breast are silicone-filled implants, with a minority of those implants also being saline or salt solution-infused implants. We're going to explore what breast augmentation is, what the latest techniques are, and what the possible pros and cons of augmentation are as well. I have a special guest, Dr. Tracy Pfeiffer, a board-certified plastic surgeon who has been in practice since 1999 on Park Avenue in Manhattan. Uh, She was trained at NYU in plastic surgery and fellowship trained specifically in breast augmentation and reconstructive surgery. Welcome to the Beauty Doc Podcast. I'm excited to have you on the show, and I know my listeners and I want to learn about breast augmentation, and I have a lot of great questions for you, so Let's get started. Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm looking forward to each and every one. I always want to know right from the get-go, what is it? I know I'm an oculoplastic surgeon, and I don't know what the deep-seated reasons why I went into uh, oculoplastics versus doing general plastic surgery, but I'd like to know sort of if you can think it out why you went you were attracted to breast surgery as uh, in terms of focusing your practice? Oh, sure. Well, that's a great question. Well, if we start at the very beginning, I would say that I always wanted to be a surgeon. So surgery was always very important to me. I think it appeals to me because you can solve a problem and, uh, you know, there's a definite endpoint. And when I went into general surgery training, Um, I loved all aspects of surgery. Every rotation that I was on, I loved it. I loved, uh, you know, colorectal. I loved breast surgery. I loved trauma. And then in my fourth year of general surgery, I did a plastics rotation. And it really appealed to me for a number of reasons. You, as the doctor, have to use your creativity. Not every operation is the same. So if you're doing, for example, an appendectomy, you pretty much do the same steps for every single patient. And it's very rewarding, but the patient gets better and then you never see them again. So with plastics, I had to think, you know, about each patient and try to develop a creative plan for each patient. It's very collaborative with the patient. You have to have um, a good discussion, you know, back and forth, good communication with them. You have to really listen to them, and I enjoy that. I enjoy sort of uncovering what patients are really thinking and what they really want for themselves. And then, you know, just the beauty aspect of it, because I do believe that if you bring beauty into people's lives, you really enrich them. And you get to have a long-lasting relationship usually with these patients. They come back, they send their friends, they send their family, so it's not like you you never see them again. That is different from most general surgery where you take care of the problem, you never see the patient again, or let's say infrequently you see the patient again. Yeah, and breast surgery is extremely creative because everybody is different. Every person's breast is different. The way they think about themselves is different. So it offers a lot of opportunities for creativity and a good relationship with the patient. So you don't think it's a cliche to say that all the plastic surgeons are artists are are, are uh, creative people or because <laughs> i i don't believe that i believe that you're almost born with that cre- that sense of creativity you know and and um you know i think a lot of surgeons think they're creative but they're not they kind of do the same nose every time or the same thing over over and over again i think what you say is 
true. I think the good, the, the exceptional plastic surgeons know how to analyze uh, a problem in very specific terms and then, you know, address those problems. I think the ones who kind of see every patient almost in identical terms end up with very mediocre results because of they're not really focused on the specificity of the problems. Right. No, I, I agree with that too. And in, in plastic surgery, it's interesting because it's almost as if the technique comes first. Sometimes, like for example, with brow lift. Brow lifts came about and everybody was thrilled that we could do brow lifts. And it was a technical accomplishment. And you would look at the post-op picture sometimes at the meetings, at least I did as a young plastic surgeon. I'm like, well, okay. The patient's brows are higher, but do that doesn't necessarily look more beautiful. And then we started doing the studies to looking at, you know, what makes a brow beautiful? What is the relationship between the brow and the lash line and the shape of the eye? So you see these things, same thing with facelifts, same thing with breast augmentation. It's a technical accomplishment that you can do the procedure. And then 10, 15 years later, everybody kind of steps back and says, okay, well, what are the right dimensions and proportions for a breast in relation to the body and the hips and within the breast and the volume distribution? So it's very interesting how it evolves over time. Yeah. So that then brings me to the question of how do you guide the average young woman, or maybe she's not young, I don't know the age limits in your practice, but I, I assume many women coming in who are want breast augmentation are probably 20 to 35 is that is that is that the range or honestly it's all it, it's in that's sort of that's the younger group yeah you know 25 early 30s usually not always but usually single professional people they haven't had children yet then there's a group that are also in that younger age range who have um, congenital, you know, asymmetries. Maybe they have tuberous breasts with an undeveloped, you know, breast shape, and they want more correction of a shape, which requires an implant, but they're not necessarily want to be that much bigger. And then there are women who have had their breasts changed either after having children and breastfeeding or they've had weight loss. So they just want to really restore what they have because it's very common after having children for your breasts to kind of deflate and you lose the fullness. So we see people at all in all age groups for breast surgery. That's interesting. So what what do you how do you guide a young woman for instance in terms of size and shape I, I, you kind of touched upon it but I, I you know I, I I've seen many women who frankly look too big for their frame and it doesn't look normal or their or or their breast implants kind of ride up high uh, on their chest wall when I you know and it doesn't look normal uh, how do you guide them in uh, picking the right size, for instance, uh, implant to, to, to uh, choose? Well, it's a process. It's, it's definitely, and it's a collaborative process. So it starts with education with the patient. So a lot of women are um, used to seeing augmentation results that are obvious because the ones who look natural, you don't know that they had anything done. So it's kind of do they, want to, do they want to look like they had something done? Some people want to look few, like they had done. A few do if yeah. you want to have like yeah. that extra fullness in the cleavage. But most people today, and it varies, again, in geographic areas, but the Northeast typically people are, these are professional, educated women who um, want to just look their best and they don't want to look obvious. And the key to not looking obvious is um, proportion. So if the breast volume is in proportion to the hips and, and to your frame, it's going to look natural. And then what type of implant you choose. So if an implant has what we call projection, which is how forward it is, it will if it's more forward, if it has more projection, the edges can be thicker. And so when you're looking at somebody from the side, and you're seeing from underneath the collarbone, and then you're looking down, you want to just see a gradual slope without any kind of a little edge or shelf or what I like to call a little speed bump where the implant begins. You want to have the top of the implant be imperceptible. You cannot tell where the implant begins or ends. So that's really, um, really, really important. 
It's also important that the width of the implant be correct because you have to have a little flare or curve on the outside of the breast to balance the flare of the hips. So it doesn't do any good to have an implant that's too narrow. So the breast looks bigger, but it's still too narrow. So because you're so you're still straight from your chest down to your waist and then your hips and then your hips flare. And that's not a good proportion. So we want a little width um, to balance the hips and yet you don't want it too wide because if it's the implants too wide, then that's out of balance. You're also. saying there's an art and that's where the, the art breast, of choosing the right implant size and shape comes right. into it comes into play for sure because you you have to have good judgment about suggesting to the patient which implant makes sense in terms of their their overall right. frame. So it, it's right. a combination. You have to you have to use your measurements. You have to measure the width of the breast and measure the height of the breast. And then I like to look at pictures with the patient of breasts that she thinks are pretty because then. There are multiple implants that will fit the dimensions or the footprint of the breast. And then based on how she, what she thinks is pretty, that's when I can start to figure out which implant is going to deliver the result that she wants because there are many, many implants to choose from. Do you use any 3D imaging systems or anything like that? Do they help or do they hurt or do they give false imaging, false impressions about what you're going to look like? I mean, The 3D imaging systems actually under promise. So the patient will look much, much prettier than the 3D imaging shows now. I mean, we're very hopeful that 3D imaging will become um, better and that we'll be able to use it more accurately, especially for people who have asymmetry so that we can predict ahead of time, okay, on the smaller side, you're going to need this implant and on the larger side, you need this implant to get the best symmetry as possible. It'll be very helpful for people who have implants already so that we could potentially subtract out the implants that they have, see what the underlying tissue and anatomic situation is, and then pick the implants. Right now, we have to do all of this in the operating room using sizers. It's hard to predict you know, exactly what, if somebody has implants in place right now, you don't really know what you're dealing with until you take the implants out. Um, and then finally, I mean, in the maybe 20 or 30 years, we could actually make customized implants. We could scan people, do the 3D imaging, show them what it's going to look like, and then they will custom make a pair of implants for the patient, depending on exactly, you know, what she wants. That that would be nice. So in the operating room, do you actually, uh, uh, you're, you're using sizers to figure it out, but they're in a, in a, in a supine, in a, they're lying down. How do you, how do you measure I mean, how well, do you how do you the, project, we, so to speak, how they're going to look standing up? Because it would be difficult, I, I would think. We sit, we have the anesthesiologist put the back of the operating table up. So the patient is positioned on the operating table with her hands on her hips because if you put them on arm boards, it changes the way the breast is sitting on the chest wall. So putting the hands on the hips keeps the breast in just a neutral, natural position. And then the um, pocket is made and put in a sizer. And then while the patient is still sleeping, they elevate the back of the operating table as close to 90 degrees as we can get it. And then I go down to the foot of the operating table and I look. <laughs> and uh, we do that with them lying down too, especially for chest wall asymmetry. You have to see the patient lying down so you can see the projection differences. So what about uh, round versus uh, different shaped? Uh, implants what do they what do they give you versus uh, what is it a heart shaped I don't know what what is the other shape well the shaped Oval? implants are um, we call them teardrop shapes so they mimic the shape of a breast if you ask somebody to draw you know a profile of what a breast looks like it, it mimics the shape of a breast and the silo these are typically silicone implants the silicone that's inside these implants is more cohesive it's more like a gummy bear consistency so the implant has a shape that it holds so even if you pressed on it it maintains its shape so these implants are really good for people who have what we would say is a shape deficiency so for example a patient who has tuberous breast where they have an under or undeveloped breast shape when they're usually missing that curve in the lower half of the breast Teardrop-shaped implants are great for them 
because it has that shape and it'll push the overlying skin into the shape. Whereas if you use a round implant with a less cohesive gel, it's more like a honey consistency. And when the tight skin in the lower half of the breast in a tuberous breast patient presses on that implant, the gel will just kind of shift and move like towards the upper, of the, uh, upper part of the implant. So it won't push the skin into the breast shape that you want. So shaped implants, and they're also really good for patients who have like very little breast tissue. In other words, no breast shape. So let's say a patient comes into the office and she's very tiny, like a yoga instructor kind of body, you know, very slender, no body fat, minus A cup. If you put a round implant in that patient, it's kind of like the princess in the pea in reverse. She has no tissue to cover it. So the roundness of the implant is really going to transmit through the skin. And you're really going to see this grapefruit kind of look. And if you use a teardrop shape in those patients, it has a nice brush shape. It doesn't look round. It looks like a breast. Now, in a person who has more breast tissue and they just need some volume replacement, you can use either, but you, a lot of times you just use the, the round implants are a little bit easier to use. So you use a round implant because you just need to put some volume back into the breast envelope. So what's, what's the difference now between the saline filled implants? All these implants, of course, are plastic, plastic, uh, outer shell, but internally they have uh, either silicone or salt solution or saline. When would you use a saline implant versus a uh, uh, a uh, silicone, silicone? Excuse yeah. me, yeah, silicone implant. And um, is there obviously there must be a, a particular indication for that? Could you tell us that? Sure. Um, the very first implants were made with silicone back in the 1960s. And silicone ha- can be any consistency from water all the way up to a solid that we would use for like a cheek or a chin implant. Silicone feels very soft. It's lighter in weight compared to a saline-filled implant because they're um, less. They're more compressible. So they, when your tissues press on them, they give a little bit. So you're not your tissues are not prone to stretch as much. So. One thing that we think about with patients who are having breast implants is we want to try to avoid long, long-term stretch of the breast, which could lead to sagging. Um, and saline implants feel firmer because they're less compressible. They're more prone to have rippling of the shell, which you can either see or feel. They're heavier, so they're more prone to stretch. And uh, the one good thing about saline implants is that, uh, number one, they become your body temperature. So they feel very warm. Sometimes a silicone implant, especially in a mastectomy patient who has very little tissue over the implant, it can feel a little cool. That's not typically something that an augmentation patient would say. How about if someone's out in the cold? Like if they go skiing, will will that silicone actually be colder? Will they feel like they have cold... No, no, not they. No, no. I'm no, just wondering no, if the, te- no. the ambient temperature will be change their uh, temperature. No, no, not not that I am aware of. Okay, no. Um, and what what were we saying about? Um, this, oh, and then this, a saline implant. If the shell gets a little um, opening in it, a little tear or a split, the silic the saline will just come out, and the body will absorb it, and you'll excrete it in the urine, and the breast will become smaller. So you know if your implant has deflated a little deflation Mm -hmm. right so with a silicone implant because the silicone's so thick there's not going to be any size change or shape change and usually the patient is unaware if the shell has a little tear in it but it's important to know that even if a silicone implant shell does have a little tear in it it's not medically unsafe this the shell itself is made out of silicone And it's not like the shell is made out of something completely different and all of a sudden you have a tear in the shell and then you're exposed to silicone inside the implant. The shell is silicone too. So this, but how about the, the, the liquid silicone in the implant? Does that cause any problems if it it leaches out? In the 70s and 80s when the silicone inside the shell was like water 
and then it would seep into the tissues, it could give you local problems, particularly something that we call capsular contracture, which is you get a lot of scar tissue kind of forming um, around the silicone. But the implants have been totally redesigned, so the silicone is much more cohesive and it doesn't seep into your tissues. Unfortunately, they still use the word leak to describe a tear in the shell, but I love to show my patients videos of a quote-unquote leaking implant and they can see for themselves how it's totally cohesive. I can squeeze the implant and it won't even like drip on the table and the silicone just kind of pooches out a little bit and then when you release the pressure, it goes right back into the implant. I'm just going to diverge here and I like to ask, is there an age when you wouldn't do a, a, a breast implant? I mean, how young is young for a breast implant? Rarely. Rarely does a young teenage girl come in. So typically, you might see somebody who is going to go to college the next year, and she might be very, very small or have asymmetry or tuberous breast, and she wants to go to college with implants so that nobody notices a change. So that person is usually 17 or 18 years old. And as long as they have the emotional maturity to understand implants, um, they're very safe, but, you know, there are potential downsides to them. So as long as they're emotionally uh, mature, I don't have any problem uh, doing the surgery for them. Silicone implants are approved for people um, who are 22 years and older. But we can still use silicone implants in patients who are younger than 22, and we it's called an off-label use. So we have to explain to them that the FDA did not approve them for people who are younger than 22, but this was really an arbitrary age cutoff. Um, there's not too many people, but that's usually the scenario is that they're going to college and they don't want to show up in their freshman year in one situation and then come back as a sophomore <laughs> looking oh, a little bit different. Oh, I got it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So they'd rather meet all their new friends, you know, yeah. with their, with their figure. That's not going to change over the years. I got it. Um, I, I noticed though, I, I know of women who, for instance, get a certain size implant when they're say 25 and then when they're 40 and they're going to get a an implant exchange, they go smaller than they were when they were originally, uh, had their implants is that is that a common occurrence that's very common and I, and I think there's multiple reasons for that first of all your people's views of themselves change you know when you're 20 in your 20s you want to be a little bit fuller that's for sure but also depending on the age of the patient 20 years ago it was more of a paternalistic approach between the doctor and the patient the doctor would say to the patient I know what you want and I'll put in a certain size implant there really wasn't a lot of input on part on the part of the patient. So many women ended up with implants that were actually larger than what they wanted. I hear this a lot. I would think just the opposite. Uh, I would have thought they would be requesting larger implants and the doctor would say go smaller. <laughs> well, that but fed into it too, be in the sense that whenever you have surgery, uh, there's going to be swelling. And so you're going to be a little bit larger. And then that goes away. And so your patients say, oh, I, you know, I wish I was a little bigger because, you know, they miss that little extra fullness. But when you explain to the patient that about the width and the height and the, the correct size for their body, they understand that that's the perfect size for them and they, and they get it. But 20 years ago, there wasn't a lot of discussion about that. So the patients will come in and they, I mean, many, many patients say this to me, that they were always unhappy with the size and they just didn't want to go back and have another surgery. They felt like if that's what they ended up with, why would it be any different the second time? And uh, so, yeah, no. <laughs> in in my practice, I see a lot of patients who definitely want to go smaller. How long do these implants last? They don't last forever, right? Do you, don't you have to exchange them at some point? Well, that's a really good question because that is sort of the thinking from, I would say, the 80s and the 90s. You mean I'm stuck in the 80s? <laughs> you might be stuck in the 80s, Dr. Koppelman. Um, but it's based on the original studies that were done in the 70s and the 80s. So we had the older generation implants with thin shells that were very fragile with the liquid-like silicone inside the implant. And the studies seemed to indicate that the shells would tear at around 10 years. 
and to take out that liquid like silicone if the shell tore it's possible it's not you can do it but it's kind of messy because the silicone is very sticky and it gets on all the instruments and you want to make sure that the plastic surgeon takes out all the silicone from the breast implant um, pocket because even if you have a little droplet left behind the body's going to make a little capsule around it and it's going to feel like a little the patient will have a sonogram and the sonogram will say, oh, that's a silicone droplet. They can tell the radiologist can look at the sonogram and tell that it's silicone and it's not breast cancer, for example. But women don't like feeling anything in their breasts. So for the surgeon, it becomes a very sort of technically challenging surgery to get all of that silicone out. So they said to themselves, well, if the shells are going to tear around 10 years, let's just take them out before they tear because it's very easy just to take out an intact implant and put in a fresh one. And the implants have a warranty, and the warranty is also tied to 10 years. So the implant would be replaced at no charge to the patient in terms of giving the patient a new implant Nine, forever. nine years and 11 months. <laughs> no, no, they would actually get the implant forever, but they would get money to help offset the cost of revision surgery up to 10 years for a leak. So this 10-year thing got reinforced. Now, in the meantime, the implants are redesigned. They're much more durable. The shells are much more uh, stronger. They don't tear as much. The leak rates are actually very low now. Um, but still the 10 year thing never really changed in people's minds. So I tell all my patient with the current modern implants, you don't need to change them. Forever. Yep. They're potentially forever. You don't need to change them for any health reason. It's usually a cosmetic reason. You want to change the size. You can see an edge. You don't want to see an edge. The implant has rippling. You want to try to reduce that. It's usually a cosmetic reason that drives a revision. Just by gravity, over time, you get stretch. Just gravity, because you're 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 having how how heavy are is each implant? For instance, what does it weigh typically? Well, well if somebody has let's say a three hundred cc implant, that's about um, 0.7 pounds. Seven pounds. Mm-hmm. So about. So you're saying it's like half a pound. Roughly? A little more than half a pound if it's a 300. Okay, so, but over time, that weight alone can can cause the breast to stretch, correct? So you you, you might have to do some kind of revision work on them at some point. Because you need a lift. Yes, and that brings up a whole interesting discussion which relates to implant selection because implants that have more projection, they stretch more. Saline, like we talked about, stretches more. Smooth implants, the... The shell can be either smooth or textured. Smooth implants are not stable in the pocket. They're moving around a lot. They can, they can lead to more stretch too. And it's interesting because patients think that if the implant is put underneath the muscle, the pectoralis major muscle, that that muscle is actually like holding up the implant. And it's totally not true. The, the muscle is actually pressing on the implant and pushing it around. So everybody needs to <laughs> be aware of the fact that implants can lead to stretch. And it's another reason why women should be properly sized and not use overly large implants. Can you clarify for me then, when would you use a smooth implant versus a textured? There's a texture on the surface of that implant. I know that they have like a, a kind of a fine grain feeling on the surface that you don't feel, but it, it can you clarify when you would use a smooth implant versus a textured implant? Yes, and that yes, is- and that is currently changing a little bit. I like to use texture because it allows me to use shaped implants. All of the shape, all of the teardrop shaped implants have to have texture so that they can be locked into position. They can't have a smooth um, shell because they could turn in the pocket and be upside down. Texture also has low capsular contracture rates and it does help prevent tissue stretch over time. Smooth implants feel the softest. So if you want a breast that's really going to feel as soft and squishy as possible, you want to use a smooth implant because the texture gives it a little bit of stiffness almost. There's currently a little bit of debate around textured implants because there is a very, very uh, rare Um, condition called anaplastic large cell lymphoma, 
which has been identified in um, several hundred women worldwide, and it's only been seen with textured implants. So there is some concern that maybe we shouldn't be using textured implants, although the FDA has looked at the data and is not making any kind of a statement about that whatsoever. It's a complicated um, subject because although these several hundred cases are called lymphoma, in fact, there's 16 patients that actually had lymphoma that needed chemotherapy. The other patients needed the implants and the capsule removed and they could put a smooth implant back in. So they didn't truly have a lymphoma. Disappeared? Mm-hmm. Disappeared. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's still under study. It's a relatively new um, diagnosis that's maybe six, eight years uh, we're aware of it, but very few cases have been known. I saw one case from Canada even as recently as five years ago, I would say most plastic surgeons had never heard of it and had certainly never encountered a case of it. So in my mind, most patients who have um, ALCL need a revision. They need the implant removed and the capsule removed and another implant put back in. And we do that Put a, a smooth lot. implant in that case? You would. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I do a lot of revision surgery for patients who have um, implant displacement with tissue stretch related to smooth implants. So to me, oh, you're you're having a revision either way. It's to me, it's not a significant issue at this point. But there are certainly plastic surgeons who disagree, and they will only use smooth implants. A young woman gets a implant. She hasn't had a child yet. Does it have any impact on breastfeeding? Does it have any impact on on sensitivity to the breast? What what are the things that uh, you know they may anticipate as a, po- a possible problem? Yeah, those are two great questions. Anytime you have um, an implant place, it's possible to have reduced nipple sensation or lose nipple sensation. A lot of times, the patients will think it's related to the incision. And where is that incision, by the way? I like to use an incision in the crease under the breast, which we call the inframammary fold. Other surgeons like to use a periureolar incision around the edge of the areola. So patients will think that if they have an incision around the areola, that that's what's leading to the loss of nipple sensation. That is not correct. It is related to making the pocket to put the implant in. Which And so that can happen no matter what incision you use, whether you're using it through coming in through the armpit, the belly button, in the crease, or periureolar. You can lose nipple sensation from the pocket being made. Now, we know the nerves are coming in on the side, so we try to avoid doing anything in that area that could damage the nerve. Like we would never cut something on the side. We just use gentle like pushing motion because nerves will kind of give and stretch a little bit and they won't be damaged. But nonetheless, if they're on significant stretch, you can have damage to the nerve. Fortunately, it's very, very rare. It's less than 1%. Um, Now, breastfeeding. Breastfeeding is safe and it's possible uh, with either saline or silicone implants. There are two studies that I'm aware of where they looked at women who had babies and breastfed and then they had implants and then they were pregnant again and they tried to breastfeed. And... I don't know the exact numbers, but it was something around 95% could breastfeed before the implants, and it went down to maybe 92 or 93% after implants. And the second study confirmed that. So there really isn't a significant no statistical difference breastfeeding. Uh-huh. Okay. Not that we know of. Not that okay. we know of. Again, the studies are very limited. We don't have a lot of patients in the studies, but from the two that we do have, it showed that there's no impact. In terms of smooth implants versus uh, textured implants in terms of the the degree of capsular contraction. Is that, does it have anything to do with biofilm uh, infections? What What is that exactly? Biofilm infections, by the way, are, are uh, for our listeners, are, are uh, bacterial infections that are uh, can adhere to textured uh, implants of, of ver- or implants of any kind, whether it's a heart implant or anything else. But is that is that an issue? Yes, it's yeah, uh, capsule contracture is related to biofilm. It's biofilm is a very interesting area of study right now in many specialties, plastic surgery, orthopedic surgery. Um, 
when the patient hears that it's related to a bacteria, we automatically think, oh, it's, it's an infection. And it is an infection, but not in the sense that we normally think of it. If we had some bacteria with a true infection, not a biofilm, the bacteria would multiply and divide, and eventually you would have an abscess, some really major sign that you had an infection requiring treatment. With a biofilm, the bacteria are in a dormant state, so they're not really multiplying and dividing the way bacteria normally do. And they're also encased in this biofilm, which I describe as a slime layer because it just helps you visualize it. So it's an impenetrable layer. Antibiotics can't really get through it very easily. And the antibiotics are also not effective because antibiotics work when the bacteria is rapidly multiplying and dividing. So if the bacteria is just kind of laying around, the antibiotics are not going to be able to kill it. So the theory with capsule contracture is that there is some biofilm that might get on the implant during the time, presumably, of the surgery, and that this creates a response by the immune system so that the immune system doesn't lay down just a little layer of capsule around the implant, which is normal, but it continues to lay down multiple layers of capsule, which eventually become very thick and kind of stiff. And this theory really makes a lot of sense because we've cultured capsules and we can see that there are bacteria and biofilm you know, in, the, in the capsules of patients who have capsular contracture. So everything that we do during the surgery is to minimize any bacteria from getting on the surface of the implant. So we don't touch the implant. Most plastic surgeons will put it in using a funnel. So the implant comes in a little sterile package. We open the package. We cover it with triple antibiotic solution. I also use betadine, which is another liquid that kills bacteria. We pour it into the funnel, and then we put the tip of the funnel through the incision, through the skin, and then kind of squeeze it in like you would if you were decorating a cake. And that way, the implant's not touching the abdomen or the skin in any way. Also, that's why I do the surgery through the crease, because after the skin is prepped with a um, sterilizing liquid, we put a sterile Band-Aid over the nipple because there are bacteria in the ducts of the nipple, and they could come out and get on the surface of the skin during the surgery. So that's why I do all the surgeries through the crease because it allows me to exclude the nipple from the surgical field. And um, texture has been shown to have lower capsular contracture rates for reasons that we don't quite understand because texture actually is more easily able to harbor bacteria than a smooth implant. Because there's texture, the bacteria would adhere to the to the texture rather than a smooth surface. By the way, I think that biofilms could also occur just from normal bacteria floating in our bloodstream, like after dental procedures and other, other things that can allow bacteria to get into our bloodstream and then, and then kind of adhere to the plastic or implant, wherever that implant is, anywhere in the body, whether it's a hip implant or, or a breast implant. So That's such a good point. Because it, may part be, of the- it, may, it may not be a surgical complication, frankly. It may just be like something that, you know, where you brush your teeth and you're getting bacteria that, that get into uh, the bloodstream. So go ahead. I'm sorry. That's such a good point because Dr. Bill Adams um, from Dallas has a plastic surgeon who's been looking at capsular contraction for many years, and he has a 14-point plan, which most of us adhere to. And part of the 14-point plan is that after augmentation, when a patient goes for something as simple as a dental cleaning, she should take an antibiotic pill one hour before. In case any bacteria get into the bloodstream, we don't want it to circulate around and attach to the surface of the implant. And it's it's important because we've all seen patients who have no capsular contracture for years and years and years, and then all of a sudden, out of the blue, well, yeah. where did where did it come from? The bacteria didn't go through the skin and get to the implant. So it's, but so do they have to prophylactically take a a antibiotic? routinely for the rest of their life do you do you, do you recommend that's that? what i Are you recommend recommending that yes. after the yes. any dental procedures before yeah. i mean before. i mean yes. i mean Forever. prior to the dental procedure yes. that is something yes. i've never heard that's very interesting it's new. very interesting dr pfeiffer uh, I've, I've i've read that polyurethane um which is a type of 
um, plastic that is used to uh, create the implants is has a lower risk of developing capsular contraction. Do you have any comments on that? Yeah, it's actually very interesting. Um, polyurethane implants were extremely popular in the 80s. That was a type of texture that was used. It was the type of texture that was used. And those implants did not develop capsular contracture. They stayed very, very soft, and surgeons loved them. Uh, I think it was in 1986, the FDA decided that we couldn't use polyurethane anymore because theoretically, the the polyurethane can degrade into toluene, which is a known carcinogen in animals. It's never been shown to be a carcinogen in human beings. Um, And there's never been a case of a patient with polyurethane-covered implants developing a cancer related to toluene. But nonetheless, um, the polyurethane was not allowed to be used in the U.S. And if you speak to some of the surgeons who had the chance to use them, they all wish for the good old days when they had polyurethane-covered implants. Europe and other parts of the world never banned polyurethane, and to this day, they're used overseas for their low capsular contracture um, properties. So, uh, but we, in the, in the, I doubt, will ever see oh, them back so they, in the U.S. they're not available in the United States. They're not available in the, U, oh, okay. in the United States, no. And there are other things that are associated with capsular contracture, too. For And this is more important for the um, patients who have been treated for breast cancer. But if somebody's had a lumpectomy, for example, to treat breast cancer, and then they've had radiation... And then let's say they need a mastectomy because they have a recurrence. It's going to be difficult to do an implant reconstruction for that patient because radiation leads to a very high rate of capsular contracture. So that type of patient would be better served usually using her own tissue for reconstruction, using tummy tuck tissue or tissue from the back where the surgeon basically moves the tissue around and and recreates the breast form. That brings me to another pressing question that that is probably not on the minds of young women but how difficult is it to identify a breast cancer if you have an implant in place when you do a mammogram or even feel it because most women are self-diagnosing themselves in terms of feeling a lump and therefore is that implant getting in in the way of them uh, feeling that tumor, and is there delays? Is there any data to show there's delays in diagnosis? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, any implant will obscure a certain percentage of the breast tissue um, on the mammogram. More tissue is obscured if the implant is on top of the muscle compared to if it's underneath the muscle. The important thing, though, is if we look at women with implants and those without implants, and we compare the two groups, there is not a delay in the diagnosis of breast cancer. And if it is, and it's not diagnosed at a later stage, there is no evidence to support that, which I know doesn't make sense because it's a little bit contradictory. If some of the breast tissue is not as well visualized on mammogram yet, How can it be that there's no delay in at least some people? And the answer to that question could be, there could be many reasons. It could be that it's such a small impact that we'd have to look at a million people to pick it up. And the study sample sizes are never that large. The other thing is that in terms of comparing under to over the muscle implant placement and the fact that there's no difference in diagnosis rates or stage of diagnosis, very little of the implant is actually covered by the muscles. So the majority of the breast with an implant in place, that implant is in the same position, whether it's under, whether it's under or over the muscle, because only such a small upper inner part of the implant is covered, actually covered by the muscle. So for the most part, the breast is basically being treated the same on the mammograms. But it's a great, great question. When a woman goes to have her mammogram, they always ask us, 
has anything changed with your breast, you have to fill out an extensive questionnaire. They always ask you, do you have implants? And if you forget to check it off, they can see right away on the mammogram that you have implants. And then they do special views called Eklund or pushback views to get the best visualization of the breast tissue with the implants in place. And then the final thing is I actually think it's easier for women to feel little lumps or cysts or little bumps in their breasts because the implant is pushing up against the breast. And when you're pressing on the breast to feel it, it gives you something to kind of push against. So it's almost easier to detect things in some cases. Do you get mammograms and ultrasounds prior to doing um, breast implants. I didn't hear anything about the pre-op um, routine. It's, is, a is great, that... it's a very good question. Yeah, if if the patient is close to needing her baseline mammogram, which we say is age 35, we will get a mammogram so that we have a clear mammogram, no implant in place, and we have a good comparison going forward. If somebody's younger than 35, but they have, they're more at risk for developing breast cancer based on their history, their family history, then yes, we will get a mammogram in that patient also. And any woman who's having breast surgery, whether it's a reduction or an implant or a lift, we always, if 35 and older, we always check the mammogram just to make sure. I want to ask you about one controversial area that I've been reading about, and that is... um, doing free fat augmentation of the breast, taking fat from some part of the body and, and using that fat uh, to fill up the uh, breast area without doing any implants. I know there some women are probably adverse to getting any foreign uh, substance uh, put in their body, and they'd rather, rather use their own fat as a method to augment their breast. Could you comment on that, please? Absolutely. It's it's a popular procedure. It's one that I don't perform um, because as of yet, I don't think we have enough long-term safety studies on it. So when the fat is removed through liposuction and then it's injected into the breast, we're probably injecting not just fat cells, but also stem cells, which can grow into different types of cells and also growth factors. And we don't know that injecting growth factors into the breast, it could or could not stimulate breast cancer. That's my main concern, is what is the effect of putting growth factors into a breast that might be more prone to developing breast cancer? We need long-term studies, 10, 20, 30 years to see if this is going to have an impact on these people. And a lot of women who are having this procedure are in their 20s, so they're not necessarily thinking about long-term effects like that. Another thing that concerns me about it is that it is really hard to predict that you're going to get a certain cup size because some of the fat will quote-unquote take and other parts of it won't take. So it's hard for somebody who, let's say it's they're an A and they want to be a full C. You're not really going to get that kind of a predictable result with a fat transfer. And finally... Um, you can get little areas of like cysts and things from the factory calcifications, which you can tell the calcifications on the mammogram that they're good calcifications and they're not the bad calcifications that are associated with breast cancer, but you can get these cysts and other problems that sometimes the cyst has to be aspirated. So from my standpoint, um, implants were studied for 14 years before they were approved by the FDA. And we have additional studies since that time. And, Everything really shows that these implants are very safe. Again, they can have some downsides, but it's not going to be a a significant health risk to the patient. It's more cosmetic issues that can develop. And I think people are taking a chance injecting fat into their breasts. There are many plastic surgeons who who do it and support it. There are some short-term studies, several years follow-up with patients that show that it is safe, but we don't have long-term studies that show that it's safe. And what about the young woman who, or maybe even I should say any age woman who has very large breasts and they feel like uh, they have back aches or there's a lot to lug around, if if I may say say that, and uh, without being uh, chauvinistic. No, it's a fact that large breasts are heavy and they pull on your shoulders and your neck and. You know, the only thing that supports the weight of the breast is 
the skin, really. It's not supported by a muscle or any other significant structure. So when you have that weight just pulling on your frame, it really leads to problems with your upper back, neck, and shoulders, and people have tremendous discomfort from it. And the beautiful thing about a breast reduction surgery is that it is very effective at relieving the pain and discomfort associated with large breasts. And the icing on the cake is that whereas, let's say, in the 1960s, women were more concerned with just feeling better and not so much with the aesthetic or the cosmetic result, now we can have both. Now we can have relief of the pain and we can create a beautiful breast, oftentimes with a limited scar pattern. So it's no longer a key key shaped pattern, or is there well, is there still that vertical uh, incision? Most below surgeons the do a procedure with with a vertical. I I certainly do. It 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 allows you to create a prettier um, shape to the breast. The anchor pattern incision, where you have a periureolar scar and then the vertical, and then you have one sort of from left to right in the crease of the breast. We call that an anchor pattern. And as much as we can, we try to get away from that one and do what we call a lollipop, where you have a periureolar incision and then the vertical incision. And it's important to know that um, we can create a pretty shape. The scars will fade. Initially, they'll be very pink, and then they'll get lighter and lighter pink, and then eventually it'll be a thin white line that should be flat and really imperceptible. The periureolar incision never catches anybody's eye because it's a circle around a circle. So when your eye looks at the breast, it doesn't really see that. It always sees the vertical, at least initially, because it's a line in the middle of the breast. It doesn't correspond to anything else. So it's important when I talk to patients that I explain to them and I show them pictures. This line is going to fade and eventually you will not see it either. Really? You won't see it. But Initially, it's going to catch your eye. It takes two or three years to like really fade out. Mm -hmm. And if anybody ever wanted to, they could. It'll be a white line. You could always go to a medical tattoo professional, and they can tattoo it in your skin color. Because at that point, the only thing that's catching your eye is the fact that it's a different color from your normal skin tone. And that can be especially important for people with more pigment in their skin. And right at the perimeter of the scar, they can get hyperpigmented. So though for those patients, it's very important to treat them with just a topical cream that suppresses the melanocytes, which make the pigment so that they don't make as much pigment. Because really, it's just too much pigment, right? A little hydroquinone or something? Is that what you use? Yep, yep, 4% hydroquinone. We pre-treat them for a couple weeks before the surgery, and then as soon as we can, usually a week, two, or three after the surgery, we start them back on it. And then very interestingly, for the past year and a half, if somebody's getting a scar that looks very kind of irritated and very red, and you see this a lot sometimes in Asian patients, also people who are Hispanic, um, we are injecting a little bit of steroid, a little bit of Kenalog steroid mixed with a lot of 5-FU, which is a very mild chemotherapy agent, and it brings down the inflammation and the irritation, and if there's swelling, it's very beneficial. In the past... We would use just steroid injections, which would thin the scar out and flatten it, which was great, but they would have a tendency to spread and become wide, and we don't want that. Yeah, mm-hmm. I use a lot of 5-FU in my That's practice great. as well, yeah, so for scars. Yeah. Okay, well, I think we've covered the bases and uh, the waterfront, I should say, <laughs> and uh, giving us all this insight on breast uh, augmentation today, Dr. Pfeiffer. It's been uh, very Uh, enlightening, and I appreciate the time uh, you've spent with us. Uh, Thank you very much. Well, the pleasure was mine, and thank you for bringing this to the public. I think it's wonderful. I admire your efforts. The information expressed on the Beauty Doc podcast are the opinions of myself and my guests, and they are not meant to replace a consultation with your doctor or beauty specialist.